You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Peggy, Steve, thanks so much for being here today. This is turning out to be pretty scary. Overnight, the governor of California has said that all 40 million Californians have been ordered to shelter in place. And this begs the question about testing. It's really been the biggest story so far. How have we fallen so behind on testing? And why are we still talking about testing as an issue? Well, I think it's hard to explain how the testing situation got so far behind this unfolding outbreak. Uh, and it is very, very tragic. Clearly, mistakes were made in terms of the, the tests that CDC developed and their ability to then expand that test to local and state health departments for use. But in addition, we should have been mobilizing from the very beginning to identify partners in the private sector who could help us develop tests as well. We actually need an array of different diagnostics to help us better understand the nature and scope, the very contours of this unfolding epidemic, as well as to identify patients who need to be treated and cared for and and isolated from others who are not sick. So both in terms of the public health management of this problem and in terms of the medical management of this problem, testing is key and we really are not where we should be. And I hope that in the next days and weeks, we will see real progress. But we're also seeing, you know, the number of infections, the number of serious disease and deaths increase, and we're seeing geographic spread. So we don't have time to lose. Peggy, I want to, this is Steve here. I want to ask, you know, we're coming in very, very late. People have made that point. There's been a lot of confusion around testing. It's been the first phase up to now has been seen as a fiasco uh, that's had huge implications. And now we're moving out, as you've mentioned, we're moving out with uh, the proliferation of new uh, of new actors bringing forward their tests under new regulatory regimen. Is it still, I think for a lot of people who are not expert in this, the question is, coming in late like this, does the testing remain so fundamentally important to the response still when we're at this late point in terms of testing individuals, isolating and quarantining them, knowing the ep- epidemiological direction that this outbreak is moving? Can you just clarify that point for us? Because I think there's a lot of confusion among the American yeah. people right now. Sure. There are actually two points here that I want to address. First is, you know, I don't really understand what some of the regulatory constraints that have been referred to really are, because during previous outbreaks, ones that I was directly involved in, like H1N1 back 2008, 2009, Ebola and Zika, we were able to work with both government entities and the private sector to get diagnostics out very rapidly through the emergency use authorization process. So it can be done and it has been done. As far as the role of testing now, you know, clearly the 
issue at present is the ability of our healthcare system to absorb the surge in cases that they're starting to see. And sadly, the gaps in terms of necessary personal protective gear, things like masks and gowns and eye goggles and gloves needed for healthcare workers to manage patients and take care of them properly, as well as other medical devices like ventilators that will be needed in the most serious cases, and we know we don't have enough. So there's a huge mobilization now that has to occur around our healthcare system and our ability to respond to the volume of sick patients. But we still do need testing. We need testing to know who really needs to be coming into the medical system. And we need testing still to better understand the issues of community spread. You know, we've been operating under the, the belief that we could sort of focus on those most at risk, the elderly, and that the, the younger populations weren't as likely to be at risk. We don't really know that for sure. We don't really know whether there are asymptomatic spreaders. It's increasingly clear that they are. We don't know how long the incubation period actually is. So I think without better testing, we can't continue to fully understand the nature of what we're trying to combat and control with this outbreak. Peggy, are you concerned about false positives and testing that, you know, makeshift tests that aren't really working properly? Well, of course, you always worry about that and false negatives, too. I am concerned that as the uh, administration has moved forward trying to respond to the problems with testing and the failures to get necessary tests out to those who need them, that the modification of the regulations have actually made it possible for diagnostics to go out into use without actually having submitted uh, data to the FDA about um, the analytic and clinical validity of those tests. And that does worry me because we know that tests have problems. I mean, we just have experienced how CDC, who has a long history of very effectively and efficiently producing tests in response to infectious disease outbreaks had quality issues that um, were so significant that it resulted in the shortage that occurred. So it makes me very nervous that we're having an array of diagnostics potentially going out that haven't really been reviewed. Reviewed quickly and expeditiously would be my goal, but to at least know that the tests did what they said they did. And we also know that in an environment like this one, where the whole world is on high alert and in a state of high anxiety about an, a global pandemic, that the opportunities for fraud and what we used to call snake oil salesmen um, is very large. And I hate the idea that there might be fraudulent products entering the marketplace as well. Well, Peggy, since the since Steve Hahn at FDA instituted made these announcements earlier this week about the new terms by which people can come forward, private firms, universities, public labs, 
and pre present the data 15 days afterwards, that then implies that we're going to reach a point very rapidly where whoever, you know, FDA will have oversight responsibility for making judgments about what is truly safe and effective and what is not and have to turn off those that are that don't qualify and which may be fraudulent. Can you say a bit about that task? Because that could be a terribly important juncture, but also is the does the capacity exist when we've sort of thrown the doors open right now in this act of high anxiety and desperation at this moment in our history? Yeah, well, I hope that the worst case scenarios that I can envision won't come to pass but it is a worrisome situation. There are a number of things that concern me. First of all, if products are just going out there for use, I don't know how FDA can even know what's being used and what they should be looking for in terms of companies bringing data to them after 15 days. Now, it may be that there's some registration process, and I hope that's true, and I assume that probably is true, but it's going to be very hard for FDA to really monitor what's out there and whether things are coming in within the 15-day period. Then there's also the concern of, of a potentially significant increase in volume of review, and you need people with a certain level of expertise to undertake these reviews. Not just anyone can be hired you know, on a temporary basis to come in to form the review teams. And I worry that FDA um, is probably already quite stretched and will get stretched even further. And that leads me to another concern, which is that as all of these emergency supplemental budgets are going forward, I've noticed that there's a tendency for people to to be pretty generous as they think about um, more money for the National Institutes of Health, who, of course, do the fundamental and clinical research that is important to this effort going forward and fund many of the academic institutions that are critical partners, and to the Centers for Disease Control, because people understand that they're the sort of boots on the ground doing some of these outbreak control activities and also um, need to be providing both technical guidance and laboratory support to states and local health departments. But the money for FDA, I worry that they're not going to be able to really get the, the dollar and human resources that they need to uh, do all the tasks that are on their plate, importantly, including these diagnostic reviews, but other important and unique activities as well. Peggy, uh, all of these strands, all of these multitudinous efforts at at getting tests out now. You talk about a registry, you talk about some manner of FDA reviewing what's truly safe and effective, what's not, and, and, and trying to preserve some order over this. Is there also provision for integrating that data so that we get the big picture? Or are we going to still be in a very fragmented situation? Well, I think that there are more and more companies that are being granted um, emergency use authorizations from the FDA, and there will be more and there will be products um, coming out. And there'll be a range of different kinds of products, some that are more like the ones that this, the CDC had developed that need to be sent off to a lab and take, you know, 
at best 24 hours, but usually more than that to get results. And then there will be some some more rapid point of care diagnostics as well. And I think that will be a great addition to the armamentarium. But it it will be important that healthcare providers and the public understand about the different array of diagnostic tests and what they're used for so that they get used properly. And and I don't know, there probably really does need to be some kind of a a hub of information. And again, I, I hope and trust that the FDA will provide this about, you know, what are the different diagnostics that are available and the healthcare system and medical product distributors are going to be very important in making sure the tests get where they need to be. And we're going to have a, a big surge up in terms of manufacturing. And even though some companies will get approvals to go forward, that doesn't mean that the tests will be available the next day. Peggy, I think most Americans are probably pretty baffled about why we, America, with the best health system in the world, best doctors in the world, best researchers in the world, can't seem to get a uniform test that's right, number one. And then number two, you know, regular people seem to be having a hard time or an inconsistent time getting tests while some of our star athletes and our actors and actresses are getting to the front of the line. As former FDA commissioner, why do you think we, we seem so incompetent and inconsistent right now? Well, I don't understand how we got here. And it's, it's, it's very sad and, and disturbing. You know, as I said, I have seen the system work um, more effectively and participated in some of those efforts during H1N1 and Ebola and Zika responses. But I think we can now really move forward. And, and as we were discussing earlier, right now, the, the really big crunch is going to come as, as patients overwhelm emergency rooms and our healthcare system in hospitals. And we, I think, need to be leaning forward now to address that more effectively. The tests are important, but I think, you know, we've made progress and eventually we need to go back and really uh, review what went wrong and how it could have been fixed with the testing. I'm very concerned that we have an opportunity today as we're talking to really move forward to ramp up manufacturing of masks and gloves, to try to expand the ventilator capacities for this nation. And the president did announce that he was, you know, potentially at least going to use the National Defense, the Defense Procurement, Defense Act? Procurement yeah. Act. But then in a recent press conference, he was sort of very coy about what he was going to do. Well, I don't think this is a time to withhold information. I think we need to be as transparent as possible. We need to be as proactive as possible. We need to take a, all hands on deck. We know that already we're seeing systems that are unable to address the surge in patients that they're seeing. So I don't Especially want to see a, another fiasco, quote unquote, with the failure to use everything in our capacity 
at the federal government level and in partnership with, with business to mobilize so that we can serve patients in this country and protect you know, the health and well-being of, of families and communities and our country. Peggy, may I ask you on that point, what's the implications? What are the consequences of CDC uh, being put into exile right now, in your estimation? I mean, they're, they're being held to blame with some justification for the testing fiasco. Dr. Redfield is, has disappeared from the stage of the White House daily press briefings. Morale is down, and yet CDC, of all institutions in terms of guiding and supporting the local, the response at the state and municipal level, is vitally important. What do you see as the consequences of this particular development, which is quite striking? Before you even answer that, Steve, I want to ask you, what do you mean by CDC being put into exile? Well, I think they're being, whether you think they're being scapegoated or justifiably held to blame for the testing fiasco, They've been marginalized, and there was a long piece in today's Washington Post by Lena Sun documenting the degree to which the guidance that they're putting forward is now colliding with and oftentimes in a confused way, contradicting guidance that's coming out of the White House. The task force itself has sort of taken on these duties. These are the most essential functions that CDC plays but also just losing their public voice is what I'm talking about. If you do not have the senior leadership, the Dr. Redfield, Anne Shuket, Nancy Messionaire, uh, and others out there engaging with the American public, that's very important in, in the credibility of CDC as a trusted source of data and information, communicating to the American public uh, in this critical period, and that has disappeared. Someone asked at the White House briefing the other day, where's Dr. Redfield? And President Trump said, I don't know. <laughs> well, I laugh, but it isn't funny. CDC is without a doubt the premier public health agency in the world. People look to the CDC for reliable, credible information about various health threats, how to address them, how to prevent them. Within the U.S., certainly local and state health departments work in close partnership with CDC and around the world, the CDC is a leader and a source of technical assistance and guidance and support. And we cannot afford to lose that, especially not at a time of a global pandemic that is so, so threatening and so damaging, not only to health, but is disrupting society as we know it and of course, having a devastating impact on our economy and economies around the world. So we need the CDC, we need its experts, we need its experience, and we need its voice. And I, I think as part of the leadership that we are looking for from the president and his team is that he will turn to the expert agencies and the expert leaders and the skilled, experienced employees of agencies like the CDC and the FDA and the NIH to do their jobs, do them fully, and respond to the crisis we're in the midst of. Peggy, I want to ask you, we've been talking about testing, but what I think we all want to know about is 
when is a vaccine going to be ready? And the reports are that it might be a year to 18 months away. What do you think about vaccines and what will be the role of the FDA to get those on the market quickly? Well, we certainly are all looking for a vaccine to address COVID-19. That is what ultimately will provide us the cushion of protection and enable us to be better prepared should this virus continue to persist in our communities and around the world. There is promising work going forward with vaccines and it's going forward with a speed that is quite impressive. And I really have to take a moment to give credit to the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation and acknowledge that I work closely with them um, and chair their joint coordinating group. So I'm a little biased, but they were created after Ebola when we recognized, you know, the critical importance of having a, an available vaccine and and the frustration at having the time lag to development. So they were created to help in the early stages of research and development towards proof of concept vaccines against pathogens of pandemic potential. And they were almost immediately out of the gate back in, in January, identifying a number of companies and giving them grants or contracts to be able to develop candidate vaccines against this novel coronavirus. And they've now expanded uh, to a number of other companies and are moving forward rapidly. There additionally are some other vaccine candidates that look promising. With a vaccine, first you have to develop the candidate vaccine, then you have to do safety testing, what's often called phase one. And that is on a relatively small number of healthy individuals just to identify how, you know, whether the vaccine in fact is safe and to give some sense of, of dosing as well in terms of, of the immune response to the vaccine. And then you can go out to really study it against the disease. And we, we have moved more swiftly in developing a vaccine against COVID-19 than in past instances of the appearance of a novel virus to where we are today. And I would have to add that it, it very much helped that early on the Chinese posted information about the genome of this novel virus for um, the entire scientific community around the world to take advantage of uh, and to help to develop necessary medical products. So that's one example of, of very positive international coordination. But the truth is that that in order to know whether the vaccine really works, to make sure that it's uh, safe and effective, and also to be able to scale up and manufacture and distribute, it is optimistic to say a year, 18 months is probably even optimistic, but these vaccine candidates are being fast-tracked. You know, nobody is viewing this as business as usual, and it is an arena that I, I have optimism about. Can I add just a couple quick points on to what Peggy said? Getting to phase three trials uh, is expensive, and CEPI is struggling right now. It has eight candidate vaccines in development. It's moved with remarkable speed. Our CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's uh, health security, which Peggy's been part of, makes a very strong recommendation around the U.S. government partnering and and getting into a direct financing relationship 
with CEPI in recognition of what an important role it plays. Right now, in order to get to phase three, it needs to raise $2 billion in capital. That's difficult. And then if you look beyond the point at which we have a safe and effective vaccine or vaccines that go into a, that go forward for emergency use authorization, you then face the gap on where's the manufacturing capacity and where's the financing for producing hundreds of millions, if not billions, of copies in a timely fashion. And that problem, we haven't even begun to really address in any serious way. And so when you say, Andrew, the estimates are 12 to 18 months to get to a, uh, a vaccine that's, that's proven its worth through phase three trials and, and has the emergency use authorization, that doesn't begin to address, okay, then how do we get that through the manufacturing process and distribute it out to those who need it? And we need to be, our argument is, we need to be doing much more right now in order to get ready for that moment and have those pieces in play. The last thing I wanted to add is we're seeing increasing evidence of the kind of nationalistic competition going on right now in the race for a vaccine. Uh, there's been some controversy around statements made or intimations from the Trump administration with respect to one German firm developing a vaccine. There's quite a bit of competition. Competition's not bad. As long as what, the, we re, what results is a product that is somehow equitably distributed to the populations out in the United States, but beyond that are going to require this. And that's going to be very complicated. Well, that's what I wanted to ask also. It's been said that there's a so-called global arms race going on right now to achieve a, a, a coronavirus vaccine and a global arms race for that is underway. Is that helpful? Is that, is that competition helpful or can it detract from the process? Well, I think that the points that Steve just raised about interest in holding on to vaccine products that might be developed within your own country is a concern and we've seen it before. And I think it will be essential from a public health and disease control perspective, as well as a humanitarian perspective and one of equity, that we rise above that. Um, and I hope that that will be our mantra. But one thing that gives me some hope is that so far I have seen the vaccine development efforts not as a global arms race from a scientific and development point of view, but really as an international collaboration. And, you know, CEPI is supported by many different countries, countries big and small, north and south. Sadly, the U.S. government has not chosen to invest in CEPI. And I really hope that this will be the moment when they recognize the value added by having an organization like CEPI and the contribution that the work of CEPI is going to make to the ultimate um, control of this pandemic and that we have a, a, a very vested interest in making sure that CEPI has the resources that it needs and that it is highly, highly appropriate that the richest country in the world contributes to CEPI at a time like this. So it's been a disappointment to me that the U.S. government hasn't chosen to do so, but I, I hope that this will be the moment when that changes. But I think there's been more collaboration, sharing of isolates to a lesser degree, and I think that's something that we need to 
to really look at, but certainly working across both sectors, private industry, with government, with academic institutions, and across borders, countries working together in international organizations, providing critical leadership um, and both dollar and human resources to the effort. So we cannot drop the ball on this one. This is absolutely fundamental. And not only do we have to be, you know, full speed ahead on the, the R&D efforts to get the, the vaccine that we need or the suite of vaccines that we need, but we also need today, as Steve was saying, to be working on how are we going to be able to manufacture, scale up and manufacture in high volume? How are we going to be able to fill and finish all of the, the vials of vaccine that will be needed? How are we going to distribute them and how are we going to actually get them into the people who need them? And those are all monumental tasks, but we need to be doing the blueprint for action now so that we don't have unnecessary time lags and delays. Peggy, we've gone on a little longer than we thought, and thank you so much for that. Can you tell us in closing sort of what gives you the greatest hope right now? Well, I think that I guess I take hope in the fact that there are so many terrific people that are are galvanized and working on this problem from the scientific and medical and public health community in this country and around the world to local mayors and state governors. And I think that at the federal level, you know, we have a terrific set of public health officials who need to be leading this effort. And I am encouraged that the government is putting more money into these activities. And I think that we all need to push to make sure that things that have to get done, get done. I think the partnerships around the world and the, the World Health Organization, everybody is trying to pull together, but this is you know a, a desperate time. I've also been very pleasantly surprised, I would have to say, by how the public has li really listened and responded. You know, again, we have to keep reinforcing the message about the importance of social distancing and the the importance for everyone, you know, old and young, those deemed high risk and those not so designated to recognize that our own individual behaviors matter to our success at controlling this epidemic and that, that we're in it, unfortunately, for the long haul, but I had always worried in a setting like this that there would be much more public outcry and disruption, anger, panic, and undermining of confidence in leaders and institutions. And I've been you know, really pleased to see how people overall are responding and I think the media, for the most part, has played a very constructive role in helping to achieve that end. Peggy, I want to thank you so much for being here today and taking the time to talk to us. Please stay well, stay safe, and uh, we'll hope to talk to you in the days and weeks to come. Thank, thank you. you, Peggy. And I want to thank CSIS for all the good work in thinking about these kind of pandemic threats ahead of time 
and trying to help us understand more about what needs to be done. And I think that as we get through this pandemic, we'll also need to work together to identify how to learn from this devastating crisis to be better prepared for the future. Absolutely. Thanks so much. 